What had been planned as a typical school board meeting in Virginia's wealthy Loudoun County this week devolved into pandemonium. Shame on you! Shame on you! With hundreds of parents flooding an auditorium to accuse the school system of teaching their kids that racism in America is structural and systemic, something the school board denies is part of the curriculum. Things got so heated that the board members eventually walked out, leaving the police to deal with the unruly crowd. Two people left in handcuffs. This is an unlawful arrest. I have a First Amendment Loudoun County School Board has been roiled for months by accusations that it has embraced critical race theory, a school of thought that maintains that racism is ingrained in U.S. law and institutions and that legacies of slavery and segregation have created an uneven playing field for black Americans. The Loudoun School System says it is simply training teachers, the majority of whom are white, to be culturally responsive to serve the county's increasingly diverse student population. The tensions in Loudoun echo a larger battle playing out across the country as Americans tackle racial and social injustice in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd last year. That was a Reuters news report about a June 2021 school board meeting in Loudoun County, Virginia, where a mob of angry white parents had taken over. They demanded that the district stop using tax dollars to make curricular and structural interventions about race and racism. They also raised the flag of parents' rights, a pandemic-born political call to arms that insisted on their right as parents to make decisions about what their children learned about the nation's racial past and present. Along with the rest of the state, Loudoun County had mounted massive resistance to desegregation in the 1960s, closing its schools rather than mix black and white students. But the school district had traveled a long way from its own racist past. Responding to the county's demographic transformation from a white rural enclave to a diverse tech-oriented suburb of Washington, D.C., Loudoun had introduced an equity plan in 2019 that promised better inclusion for students of color. In the words of NPR reporter Colleen Grablick, the plan consisted of implicit bias training, enhanced protocols for handling racist behavior, and improved reporting systems for students. Subsequently, five parents sued the school board, launching a new political struggle that put the teaching of race as well as education about gender and sexuality in the national spotlight. While that lawsuit and a second one were dismissed, the parents' group, Fight for Schools and Families, continued to harass the school board and pursue recall campaigns against its members. But Fight for Schools and Families wasn't the grassroots group it claimed to be. It was a political action super PAC formed on June 1st, 2021, just before the Loudoun County action. The bulk of its spending went to midterm attack ads against Democratic House candidates Jennifer Wexton and Abigail Spanberger who were running for the House in Virginia's 10th Congressional District, which makes up much of Loudoun County, and the neighboring 7th. While those attack ads took up another theme, false charges that activists wanted to jail school officials who failed to address students by their chosen pronouns on felony charges, in 2021, it was also clear that the attack on Loudoun schools was intended to boost the candidacy of Republican Glenn Youngkin for governor. Did it work? You tell me. Wexton and Spanberger won, but so did Glenn Youngkin, even though he lost Loudoun County. Democratic challenger Terry McAuliffe only won this blue county by 55 percent, a reduced margin from Biden's 61 percent in 2020. 
it was a key factor in a narrow loss. Curriculum controversies are not just abstractly political. The strategists that run campaigns believe that they have the potential to turn blue districts purple and purple districts, whole purple states, bright red. Predictably, since Yunkin's victory, arguments about teaching race in school have only become more heated and riddled with disinformation disseminated by right-wing extremist groups like Moms for Liberty, the 1776 Project, and the Ron DeSantis-led Republican state government of Florida. But these attacks are also riddled with tales of woe illustrating the harm that white true believers conjure from black history and literature. At the contentious Loudoun hearings, white parents reported that their children, and even teens, were traumatized by encountering the United States' racial past in fiction and history texts. And after the election, Republicans repaid this small group of voters for their efforts, stripping Virginia's curriculum of many of the subjects and interpretations they had protested. Suppose you are a dedicated reader of this podcast's companion substack, Political Junkie. In that case, you know that versions of the story, a broad-based Republican campaign to win a permanent governing majority under the false flag of an AstroTurf parents' rights movement, is playing out nationwide. Furthermore, these inquiries cut to the heart of the alternative past that the right cherishes but refuses to name, that the history of so-called Western civilization is the property of European-descended people. In other words, if we are to understand the revived vitriol towards blackness, we might want to start by re-examining the murky past of American whiteness. So I returned to historian and visual artist Nell Irvin Painter's 2010 book, The History of White People. Painter, one of this country's preeminent historians of the 19th century, race, and the African-American past, traces the history of this fictional white race from antiquity to the present. She began her research with a simple question. Why, for several hundred years, had white people in the United States called themselves Caucasian, when the Caucasus, an Eastern European region bordering on Asia, were a place where most white people's ancestors did not originate? Join Nell and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, an emeritus professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 30, Inventing a White Race. Painter, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Claire. I'm so glad to be here. Now, you wrote the history of white people in 2010, and given everything that's happening in Florida and Texas and with the college board, I couldn't help but pick it up again. Can you tell us why you decided to write the history of white people in the first place? Sure. Well, you know, it's uh, the history of white people is like my nth book. So it wasn't like I had to do anything or meet any deadlines or anything like that. In my whole historical career, I've only written what I wanted. So that was nothing new. But it started with a question, which is, why are American white people called Caucasian? 
And that came to me, gosh, it was at the turn of the century when the Russians were bombing the bejesus out of Chechnya. Chechnya is the North Caucasus, which is the Caucasus. They were bombing Caucasians. And Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, was just, it looked like Berlin in 1945. So what's going on here that these people have given their name or we have taken their name for American white people? So that's the question I wanted to answer. And I answered it in the chapters on Blumenbach, sort of late 18th century, and with the birth of race science. But my editor kept talking about ideas of race as if they were permanent. And I realized that I really needed to go back to antiquity and talk about how Europeans talked about the people we now consider white before the invention of American races. So that took a while. And then it was, how did this enlightenment knowledge from Germany get over to the United States? So then I had to do uh, Germaine de Stael and uh, a lot of Emerson, a whole lot of Emerson. And then there was the question of, well, now what? So then I had to bring it up to the then present. Now, the then present was uh, 2010. So that was before the pandemic and before 2020 and before Trump. All of those changed the way Americans think about race, about white race. So I have not brought this book up to the present time. But in 2020, just before the pandemic and before the Black Lives Matter protest, I was in an artist residency in Italy, and I made an artist book about American whiteness since Trump, which is on my website, nellpainter.com. And then in the summer of 2020, I made another artist book called From Slavery to Freedom, which deals with the uprising of 2020. So in a different medium, I have addressed American whiteness since 2010. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to say this. You're one of the most capacious intellectuals I've ever known. And now you're a visual artist as well. I mean, you're just lapping all of us now. Um, I've had plenty of time. (laughs) I'm trying to catch up. Um, But one of the things that I thought about when I looked at the 2010 date, I thought, all right, but this book was published at exactly the moment when the United States was patting itself on the back or white oh, yeah. people in the United States was pat- were patting themselves on the back for electing a black president. Yeah. And then the Tea Party was yeah. kind of pulling themselves together and saying, actually, we don't like it that this black guy is president. Yeah. So, yeah. so it came out at this very volatile moment. Can you describe your encounters with this book at that moment. I can. can. Uh, So I was on book tour in 2010, which was also a census year. Needless to say, you know, the great mass of my audiences were white people. So I would often get the question of, you know, somebody sort of squirming and saying, well, I don't want to be a white chauvinist, but how do I deal with the census? Because they didn't want to 
do white because white was a tainted identity. So I said, well, we'll check black. We need more black people. (laughs) That was one thing. But the other thing was time and again, I would stand up and, well, your audience can't see this book. I will describe it. It is a white book with a central black circle. So most of the book cover is white. And then it says the history of white people. So it's very clearly a white book about white people. But the first question would be about black people over and over again. So I I just concluded that a lot of Americans find white people boring. And it's not so much boring. I think really it's avoidance and they'd much rather talk about black people. But as I say in, in the foreword, Americans, there's so much used to talking about race as not white, mostly as black. And we know that there, you know, there's whole libraries about race as black, but they're not whole libraries about race as white. And that little sliver, so much of it, is about white supremacy and white nationalism and other nasty things that people want to avoid. The history of white people came sort of at the tail end of a flurry of studies in American history, which were called whiteness studies. And they came out of cultural studies and American studies and some in American history. And a lot of those books were about how people from Europe who weren't initially thought of as white became white. But that isn't really what this book is about, is it? Can you give us the trajectory that you cover here? First of all, that flurry of whiteness studies had kind of died down by the time I published. It was at the very end of the 20th century. And the authors were people whose grandparents had been immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. And they started with the erroneous assumption that their grandparents and great-grandparents had not been or would not have been considered white in the United States. That is wrong. Their grandparents uh, and great-grandparents would have been considered white but of inferior white races. The hardest thing for me to get across to Americans is that the idea of one big white race is embedded historically, chronologically, in the middle of the 20th century. And before that, the common wisdom was that there was more than one white race. There were several white races, and you could rank them. And at the very top were the Saxons or the Anglo-Saxons or the Teutons or the Nordics, depending on when you were uh, pulling up the word, because Nordic was um, invented during the era of the First World War. But these uh, ancestors would have been considered East European Hebrews or Northern Italians or Southern Italians or Slavs. You know, all these other kinds of white people. That was kind of the assumption undergirding a lot of the interest in whiteness studies and the assumptions of whiteness that, you know, the Irish didn't become white. They were, they were Celts. <laughs> they were just the wrong kind of white people. 
the idea of whiteness changed around the time of the 30s and 40s, particularly in the 1940s, the Second World War, in the shadow of Nazism, in the shadow of murderous anti-Semitism. All those historical events changed how educated Americans thought about white race. I'm friends with and I looked at and read whiteness studies. As I just said, I disagreed with part of it, but that had kind of died down by the time I was writing. And I was writing from different assumptions. I want to get back to the early chapters of the book because you do a lot of work with questions of rank and servitude and slavery and captivity and this kind of motion around Europe in which peoples are being captured and shuffled around and intermingling and so on. How did that thinking become foundational to your ideas about how whiteness emerges as a central racial idea? It started with the discovery that the skull that made Caucasians white people, this is at the University of Göttingen uh, at the very end of the 18th century. And that particular skull came from a young woman who was literally raped to death in Moscow. She was an enslaved captive in a part of the world that had been the source of enslaved people, enslaved captives, for centuries, for millennia. So it started with this particular skull. I don't know the woman's name, but I know how she got to Göttingen. It was via Moscow, via a German-descended Russian who had been educated at Göttingen and who was enriching Göttingen with all kinds of artifacts. And her skull was one of the artifacts. So this central artifact was not only enslaved, she died of venereal disease. So the question of sex and race and slavery started with this particular skull. And part of what science does then is ask us to forget about these mixing and minglings and so on. So that race science, as it emerges in the 19th century, disavows all of this and says, no, there were distinctive people that represent distinctive races. How did that happen now? Well, first of all, race science in the United States arises from American history and American culture. So it made sense to use the word Caucasian for all these people in the United States or to talk about white people from the United States, a slave society uh, based on distinctions of skin color race. So there's a theme that comes out in the, the whiteness studies in the United States that doesn't work in Europe, where the longstanding way of putting people down is through anti-Semitism. So in Europe, you need to deal with anti-Semitism and with the existence of Jewish people and the existence of people like Laps, for instance, who never quite fit the categories. In the United States, we don't have to deal with lapse. 
but we do have to deal with Jewish people. And that always bedeviled the race scientists. They always confused their categories. So it depends on where you're asking the scientists the questions. And so until I get to about um, 1830, I'm asking Europeans. And after that, I'm asking Americans. In Europe, and I'm thinking in particular of your colleague Linda Colley's book, Captives, there is this period during the Crusades and shortly after in which white people are actually being taken captive and enslaved yeah. by North Africans and Muslims and so on. And there's this, there's this moment in which a literature emerges that says, this is unjust, this is wrong. How does that figure, how does that European history figure in the creation of an American myth about whiteness? It doesn't really figure. Thanks to Linda Colley reminding me about Robinson Crusoe, for instance, that existence of white slavery doesn't figure in American thinking about race and about enslavement. American thinking about race and enslavement is all Black and it's all African. So the general knowledge about slavery in the United States is pretty simplistic. But I must say that There's a whole literature that has been growing that has uh, sought to to find out who the people really were. And of course, the people who got caught up in the Atlantic slave trade were a wide variety of people. And then there's the whole question about what happens to people in, particularly in the South, who are mostly descended from Europeans, but who have an African ancestor and who by that unhappy fact can then be enslaved. So there's a you know there's a whole story an overweening story in the United States about slavery and race that doesn't fit with with the story of the skull that made white people into caucasians. So I spent a lot of time trying to remind people of the history of slavery in Europe and the Black Sea slave trade and how ideas that have been discarded or forgotten by Americans because they don't fit the American story nevertheless are embedded in how we think about white race. Can you tell our listeners who may not understand these questions, what is it that makes American slavery unique And what is it that makes the American racial order that comes out of slavery unique in the world? I'm sitting back and thinking, wait, no, Claire, not unique. (laughs) It's unique because it's 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries in the particular place that we happen to be sitting and the particular histories that you and I have studied. Sure. And the newspapers that we read every day and the politics and the culture that we follow every day, sure. But the mechanics of dominance, enslavement, othering, you can see those all around the world. And I think it's important to understand that you can see othering, dominance, enslavement, the disregard of human rights all over the world. Orlando Patterson wrote a book years ago about slavery 
in the larger sense and showed how enslavement in the United States fit into this larger human pattern of dominance. So the history of white people is a history of sorting, of dominance, of the creation of a mythical self that can be superior to all other selves. Was there an alternative history that could have happened? You know, I'll answer a question that people often ask me, which is, will we ever get past race? And I say, well, in many ways, we we have taken big steps. So for instance, race is no longer encoded in state, local, and national laws. It's not just white people or white men who can be naturalized. So we've, we've, we've made several steps. But what comes after? I say, well, you know, there's the tried and true of millennia, which is religion, which we know can create uh, awful things. Of course, religion and, of course, the certainty that science and pseudoscience deliver to people that suggests that there is an essential self that has a fixed history. And I think one of the things you do in the history of white people is you really tease apart that history and say there wasn't anything fixed about this, but rather (laughs) it was a very complex set of interweavings that produced a racial system, which is not to say that there was not agency involved. There's plenty of agency involved but that we actually perhaps need to own this history rather than to say, we're going to pretend this history didn't happen and that we live in a world other than the one we live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the whole point of this book is things change. And I would add that since things change, people change them and we can change them. So how do we change them other than everybody picking up this wonderful book and reading it and having to think a lot of really uncomfortable thoughts? How does history help us change things? I don't know if history helps us change things, Claire. I think living and keeping your eyes open and deciding, wait a minute, this is not right. I think that's what changes things. Of course, I would love people to read my book. And I would love to to say, well, gosh, the way people thought about white race really changed over time, and I can change it. I would love them to read my book and to come to that conclusion. However, I think just being awake and understanding that your agency can make a difference. My best friend lives in Nashville And she's been filling me in. Well, the newspapers have been filling me in on what's going on in Nashville. And, uh, you know, people have been out in the street. And that's where people need to be. We need to be out in the street. But there's also something going on in education, which I think this book addresses. You know, when I was reviewing it, one of the things I thought is you could easily use this book as a central text for a world history course or a global history course. And yet in many states of the union, that would be illegal because it actually looks at the history of the world through the lens of race. 
So what do we do to fight back against the marginalization of this kind of work? Empower your librarians, empower your teachers, write letters. I have been following Freedom to Learn, which came out of Florida's uh, undoing of the College Board's uh, Black Studies, but which is now much larger and is about the freedom to learn. You could support that organization. That's one thing I do and other people could do. I think that most of this is going to take place on the state and local level, which is where progressives need to be way more active. Progressive people need to be running for school board and running for county commissioner. That's where the decisions get made. And that's where people concerned with human rights, anti-racist people need to be. We're going to link to Freedom to Learn in the show notes. But I also want to ask you, I want to bring you back to the book for a second. It's an intellectual history. And you've done so many, so much work in different genres. You've written biography, you've written political history, you've written social history. How did intellectual history become the place for thinking through such a big set of ideas? It came from the question where I started. You know, it's an intellectual question. Why are American white people called Caucasian? And let me uh, just say that uh, since I started working on this, you know, a million years ago, the terminology for white people has become white people. And Caucasian is no longer used as much. And I think that's because American white people have become more comfortable understanding that they are white people and don't need euphemism as much. I think this is something that the whole reorientation of race thinking with Trump has come about, that more white people are able to understand themselves not simply as individuals, which is what we grew up with. White people are individuals. Black people have race. But more white people are understanding themselves as having a race and not needing the euphemism of Caucasian, of understanding their race as white. But I will also say that even though this is an intellectual history, it has attracted some negative Luckily, I have not been subject to onslaughts, ugly onslaughts, probably because the book is too hard. But the book has a tainted word in its title, which is white. And it ended up on a long list that a legislator in Texas drew up. To my knowledge, it has not been banned. Although if it were banned, you would join a list of I'm not good enough to be banned. <laughs> oh, I know. I was upset about you know the yeah. Russians saying you know that uh, why am I not on the list why of five hundred? But to think about this book as a intellectual history of not just race, but of the intractable quality of race in this country, that white people can't actually get comfortable with their own whiteness. So on the one hand, we have the 
dominance of white people in a range of structures. On the other hand, we've got this whole subset of white people who are now articulating themselves as being oppressed That's right. by black people specifically, but people of color more generally. Yeah. How did that history arise? Well, first of all, that is a minority of the American people. And I think we need to remember day in and day out, even though the obsessive preoccupation with bigots, with Trumps, with MAGA, with Republicans, with the right wing, with the horrors and so on, that's the preoccupation. But it's not the majority of Americans. That's the first thing I want us to remember. It's not the majority of Americans. And even though we have so much work yet to do, we have done some work and we need to keep doing it. What is the work of anti-racism that white people who wish to engage the project need to do other than reading smart books like this? Well, they need to be active where they live. And if they live in a safe place, like I live in New Jersey and New York, they can buddy up with people who aren't in safe places. But the big thing is to be active on your local level. That, I think, is the key. If we are to be able to breathe free, it needs to start, continue, gather strength on the state and local level. I agree with you. And then part of what I worry about is that whiteness has actually become more of a stigma as we've seen the rise of white nationalism again, white nationalist violence, Christian nationalism, and so on. Is it possible to own the term white people without at least some tinge of shame or concern? Some years ago, I think it was like in 2015, even, I wrote a piece in the New York Times, and I suggested that anti-racist white people can call themselves abolitionists. That was a great piece, and we're actually going to link to that in the show notes. Can you tell our listeners the resonance of that word abolitionist? Abolitionists goes back to anti-slavery. Slavery is still a problem in our times and even in our places. Right now, I am thinking about a new book on Sojourner Truth that one of the issues that I'm writing about is the traffic in children and the traffic in children continues. But by and large, we don't have to think about slavery. When I say abolitionist, it's abolishing discrimination for one. So the history of abolitionists in the United States goes back before the United States existed, actually, because slavery existed in North America before there was a United States of America. And so it's a long tradition. Up here, we we belong to a group called John Brown Lives, exclamation point. And that's our anti-racist human rights group. And there are groups like that all over the country. So you don't have to be an abolitionist and think, oh, I got to go find some slavery to abolish. No, there are plenty of bad practices to abolish in the here and now. Also, just thinking about the word abolitionists, the abolitionists were 
imperfect. White abolitionists often made assumptions about Black people that were unwarranted and were bigoted, even as they continued to push that work forward. So it seems to me abolitionist is a nice word to embrace because a white person can also embrace her own imperfection and her own desire to learn. I wouldn't dwell on that side of it. I would dwell okay. on the side <laughs> of doing the right for human rights. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I think one of the things that keeps white people paralyzed is their fear that they're going to humiliate themselves, that they're going to do something wrong, that they're going to say something wrong. And in some ways, I think some of this legislation, this extreme legislation that is being driven by governments in places like Florida and Texas taps into a real fear in a lot of white people that they actually are implicated in America's racial problems and they don't want to deal with that. Well, there there are plenty of ways to take baby steps, bigger steps, giant steps in dealing with that. In the last couple of decades, there's grown up a whole bibliography of how to be an anti-racist. So if that were the concern, there are plenty of ways to step into anti-racism in the comfort of your own home. So I guess I'm saying I don't agree with you. This anti-racist started learning about race from reading. That was what was available to me as a young person um, who was growing up in, in segregation, frankly. So Nell, we've had so much to say about this, but this is the last question I ask all my guests. Can you tell our listeners why they should read this book now? They should read this book now to see how thinking about whiteness and white Americanness has changed over time and to conclude that you can change it too that it's not something carved in stone or sculpted in marble, that ideas about identity change all the time. And they are still changing. Whether or not you get involved, they're still changing. So I think this book would encourage people to think in a a kind of flexible way about identity. That identity is not something that is put upon you once and for all, for all time. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, ClarePotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, 
edited and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.